0: Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federalist Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello, and welcome to this Federalist Society virtual event. My name is Sam Fenler, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups with the Federalist Society. Today, we're excited to host Government Censorship, Disinformation, and Scientific Consensus, a Litigation Update on Missouri v. Biden and Hogue v. Newsom, featuring Janine Younis. Janine is Litigation Counsel for the New Civil Liberties Alliance and represents plaintiffs in both cases that we'll discuss today. Our moderator is Peggy Little. Peggy Little is Senior Counsel at New Civil Liberties Alliance and serves as an Executive Committee Member of the Federalist Society's Litigation Practice Group. If you'd like to learn more about our guests, you can find their full bios on our website, fedsoc.org. After Janine gives her opening remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom window, and we'll do our best to answer as many as we can. Finally, I'll note that, as always, all expressions of opinion today are those of our guest speakers, not the Federalist Society. Peggy, thank you very much for joining us today, and the floor is yours. Thank you.
1: Today we are going to be focusing on two very large and current topics: government censorship, disinformation, and scientific consensus. Uh, we'll be focusing on two cases: Missouri versus Biden and Hoag v. Newsom. And our speaker is Janine Yunus. She represents renowned epidemiologists and co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, Doctors Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Kulldorff. Uh, as well as two other plaintiffs in the Missouri v. Biden case. That is a case that uncovered the Twitter files and continues to yield evidence of a widespread censorship campaign by the White House and senior officials throughout the Biden administration to censor viewpoints that conflict with the government's messaging on COVID-19. Janine also represents five physician plaintiffs in Hogue versus Newsom which is challenging the state of California's infamous Assembly Bill 2098, which empowers the Medical Board of California uh, to discipline physicians who disseminate information regarding, regarding COVID-19 that departs from the, quote, contemporary scientific consensus. In late January, Janine secured a preliminary injunction in joining California inf- officials from, in enforcing that law. Janine's work has been at the forefront of these questions. Janine, let's start with some background. Tell us how you came to know Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Kuhldorf.
2: Thank you so much, Peggy. Um, So I was actually uh, two years ago or more now, two and a half years ago, I was a public defender in New York. um, And I had become active in uh, writing against COVID lockdowns and other uh, mandates related to, you know, COVID restrictions. Um, I ended up writing for an organization called the American Institute for Economic Research, which invited Drs. Bhattacharya and Kuldorf there to sort of strategize with other people, journalists, lawyers, um, who were like-minded on the topic uh, about how to sort of fight back against this and Get the idea out into the public square that lockdowns are not accepted. Um, they're, they're not ge- the general strategy, accepted for dealing with pandemics. That um, you know, it was actually there was actually no scientific consensus in the scientific community that that was the proper approach. So I ended up going there and meeting them. Uh, this there the weekend they wrote the declaration, and we've sort of continued to stay in touch during my time at NCLA. Um, so that's the very beginning. I then um, brought a case called Chenghizi versus the Department of Health and Human Services about a year ago, I filed the complaint. And uh, there were three plaintiffs there, um, Dr. Chenghizi, who's a cognitive theoretical scientist and two lawyers, Michael Sanger and Daniel Coateson, who had all tweeted um, against COVID restrictions since the very beginning, since March of 2020. We noticed that they and other people had started getting suspended at a much uh, higher rate beginning about um, the spring of 2021. And this was at the same time that members of the Biden administration, like the president himself, his uh, then press secretary, Jennifer Saki, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy began making statements saying that the tech companies were responsible for people's deaths from COVID if they didn't censor so-called misinformation about it, especially about the vaccines, but also other things like lockdowns and masks. Um, we, you know, suspected that the fact and saying that the tech companies should and would be held accountable if they didn't do more to stop the spread of this misinformation. We suspected that the timing wasn't purely coincidental. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought it was clear that the tech companies were reacting to the uh, threats of the government and were responsible for, you know, ultimately responsible for the suspensions, suspensions and other censorship. That, of course, presents a First Amendment problem, because if the government is using the private companies to do what it can't do directly, which is censor, used on topics like COVID that differ from the government's, um, yet that's state action, and uh, in my opinion, is a First Amendment violation.
1: Oh, see, okay, so what happened in that first case that you brought um, yeah. for Dr. Changi? So,
2: unfortunately, the judge uh, granted the, the government's motion to dismiss that case on coincidentally, May 5th of 2022, the same day that the attorneys general of Louisiana and Missouri brought a similar lawsuit um, on behalf of the citizens of their state. So they made very similar claims that the federal government had been directing social media censorship, and then that, that was a First Amendment violation. Uh, there, this lawsuit was actually broader. So it wasn't just about COVID. It's also about like climate misinformation, the election, Hunter Biden laptop. It encompasses a lot of different topics. Um, they wanted to have private plaintiffs join and they asked me to represent the private plaintiffs first because they knew I um, they had used parts of my complaint. They were, you know, thought I obviously understood the issue, was very interested in it. And also, I had personal relationships with the plaintiffs. So uh, it made sense for NCLA and me to represent them. And so, the status
1: of the first case that you brought, brought where you were allowed discovery.
2: No, no. And that's one of our main, so we're, it's on appeal right now in the Sixth third, sixth Circuit. And one of the points we're making is that, you know, we weren't going to have access to internal communications like between people in government or the government and the tech companies without discovery. So how are we supposed to know exactly what's going on with respect to the government directing the censorship? All we are arguing is that what the government was say, they were saying they were doing, they were doing, and at least that's reason enough for us to get to discovery. Um, and find out exactly what was going on. And in fact, we've gotten significant discovery in Missouri that has showed, you know, that we were right.
1: Yeah. So how did that change when you joined uh, Missouri?
2: (laughs) So we filed that case in the Western District of of Louisiana, and the judge there granted preliminary injunction-related discovery, which uh, is quite rare for judges to grant discovery at that early stage. So we've actually been in discovery. We're still finally, (laughs) finally wrapping that up. We've been in discovery since like, July or August of 2022. So quite a long process. Um, What what we initially got a lot of uh, form a lot of discovery in the form of documents like text messages, emails, um, mostly between the tech companies and uh, government employees, and that this showed a, a high level of collusion. You know the especially CDC DHS, you have very high up officials who are telling the tech companies you should be censoring this type of, type of post from this type of post, even this specific person should be kicked off the platform um like Robert Kennedy is one that the disinformation doesn't um so Naomi Wolf specifically named. so you what you have is the government telling the companies to censor certain types of material and certain types of posts. Now, go ahead. Sorry.
1: So, why don't you give us the highlights? And people, this is a case that I think people are very, um, very interested in, and would like to hear with some specificity. Maybe the top six uh, connections you were able to uh, uncover between uh, direction from government officials. Uh, to the social media uh, executives and, and what they said about what they should do. And in that uh, context, uh, you might also help us understand the difference between bans, shadow bans, de-boosting and deplatforming.
2: Sure, sure. So there, the, there's a lot of telling them to remove certain kinds of posts, especially about the vaccines. Now, some of it, like most of us would recognize is not Valid scientific information like the vaccines have microchips. Um, (laughs) The vaccines will, you know, cause you to get cancer. I don't think there's any evidence of that so far. But then it veers into, um, you know, posts like uh, the vaccines might cause menstrual problems, which we now don't know to be true. So the CDC was um, actually telling the companies to censor that type of thing. So the government's defense thus far has been. They, you know, they're obviously in the in light of all these emails, they can't say that uh, this wasn't happening, that they weren't working with the companies. But they're saying, well, we just were, we were just helping the companies. The companies had misinformation policies. We were just helping them to effectuate those. We were telling them, like, we were giving them our scientific advice as the CDC about what should be considered misinformation. Um, I think that that really falls, that argument falls flat in light of the public threats that were made uh, by members of the administration, that the companies would be held accountable for regulation or other legal consequences. But the sort of highlight or the big thing for me was um, a bunch of emails came out not so long ago at the beginning of January from someone in the White House named Rob Flaherty. He's the director of digital media strategy, I believe is his title. And at the beginning of 2021, he was the first three months or so, he was sending Tech, the tech companies, especially Google and Facebook, extremely aggressive messages saying things like, "You know, you you're not doing enough. People are dying because of you. You're increasing vaccine hesitancy. You're the problem. If you don't, incre- if you don't start censoring vaccine misinformation, you know, we're we're really going to do something about it." And then the tech companies are responding and saying, "Okay, okay, we're changing our policies. We're taking down more posts." Uh, so this is quite obviously. <laughs> The company is reacting to the government's pressure, coercion, however you want to put it. This is obviously not some kind of collaborative, um, uh, you know, situation, which I would I still think should be considered a First Amendment violation. I don't think that the government and private companies should be able to work together to censor people, but it's obviously a stronger case when it's government coercion. Uh, which is quite obviously what was going on here. And another thing that Rob Flaherty said was, I don't even care if it's true based, on, I don't think he, he said even true content. If it's stoking vaccine hesitancy, it should be taken off. So that presumably includes, you know, people telling stories about vaccine injuries, which we know has, has happened. I mean, that we, you know, don't have exact clarity on the numbers, but, um, And I think that you know is quite disturbing. Uh, I mean, it's all quite disturbing, but that this is going—you know—they're not even at this point even pretending it's just about getting rid of you know misinformation. Right now,
1: there there is a point though, as you say, to some uh, need for moderation. If um, uh, there is, uh, you know, truly, uh, let's put it this way: the social media sites do have to regulate some content for porn, for other sorts of things. And so where do you think they overstep the line here?
2: Well, I think, you know, porn and, uh, you know, stuff like that, or if people were exchanging messages about selling drugs, that would be illegal anyways. That's illegal. I mean, when things are illegal, I don't think, you know, (laughs) they're obviously not protected. And I obviously don't have a problem with the tech companies removing them or necessarily even the government uh being involved in that if you know the government's trying to you know uh sort of relatedly DHS has played a role in trying to combat uh foreign actors from interfering with our elections sort of on you know um sort of just trying to manipulate Americans i that's sort of a fuzzy line i can i can understand why the government would be involved there i think it's a little harder to Delineate exactly where that line is. But here we're talking about people just expressing opinions that differ from the governments. Some of those opinions are, you know, sort of patently false, like the vaccine has a microchip, some are not. Uh, you know, if I, I had a stroke after getting the vaccine, um, but all of that is protective First Amendment speech. And so the government should certainly not be playing a role in um in censoring it. And if if the companies want to censor it on their own, You know, I think that's a that's a long conversation. And I I know people I tend to think the libertarian conservative community is pretty divided on that issue, Uh, whether the companies should be able to do this since they are so powerful and they sort of control the modern public square. It's difficult. But what I think we can say for sure is the government should have no role in this. Were
1: the plaintiffs that you uh, represented, uh, did they experience some of this um, interference with their uh, uh, expression of opinion? Yeah.
2: yeah, And so they have uh, Martin Kulldorff, for example, uh, was an epidemiologist at Harvard and uh, (laughs) incidentally one of the top cited uh, infectious disease experts and I think vaccine safety uh, experts in the world uh, had tweeted something like not everybody needs to get the vaccine. Children don't need it. People who've had COVID before. And that was um, marked as misinformation, and I think only he could see it. He had similar experiences on LinkedIn, too, for similar types of things. Um, Jay Bhattacharya, epidemiologist at Stanford, was um, placed on a Twitter blacklist. We actually learned that from the Twitter files. So he was blacklisted immediately, which meant that his account was downgraded. So his tweets weren't... Ig- directly censored, but this is what shadow banning is, which you mentioned earlier, where the algorithm, you know, then in, I don't know, I don't know technology that well, but <laughs> so I might not be using words exactly the right way, but the algorithm kind of downgrades your account. So your tweets appear less to other people. Um, so that means your influence is uh, hampered, basically. Okay.
1: And uh, there's a lot of uh, ways this can happen. Uh, shadow banning, de-boosting, de-platforming demonetizing, which we're discovering a lot about these days, um, what, what would you say was the most, uh, disturbing pattern that you found, um, and, and out of which agencies or, uh, or were, were that, was that generated?
2: Yeah, I, so that what I mentioned coming from the White House, Rob Flaherty, I think was, uh, Probably the most disturbing because it was the most aggressive and it was the most obvious that this was, you know, the White House uh, telling the companies to do this. And the company is clearly reacting, um, you know, clearly saying we're changing our policies because you're more or less, you're putting us under pressure. Um, and of course, the true content thing. But as far as the agencies, CDC and DHS played a very, very heavy handed role uh, in this. And it's in. CDC, I would say CDC, especially um, with the COVID misinformation, and then DHS has a role with the election misinformation, but they were even playing a role with the COVID misinformation. So there were emails from DHS employees saying that uh, questioning masks should be considered a national security threat, and that should be removed. I mean, the idea that we have the Department of Homeland Security saying that Americans who question masks pose a national security threat and their tweets should be removed is, I mean, should be stunning to most people, I think. Now, is this uh, discovery still ongoing? Um, it's So it's wrapping up right now. We uh, we had, so we got the, uh, we got all the, these emails. Um, it was about 16,000 pages of emails. So it's quite a lot. Uh, and then we, uh, the judge after that, based on what we saw in those emails, ordered depositions of some people that we requested. So probably the most interesting to most people is uh, Anthony Fauci. We deposed him um, in November of 2022. Um there's been a little bit of a fight about some other high-ranking officials. So initially the judge ordered Jen Psaki, the former White House Press Secretary, to be deposed, as well as the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. uh, There was a fight in the Fifth Circuit, uh, the Court of Appeals and the jurisdiction. And so some of that didn't end up happening. But we deposed uh, Carol Crawford at the CDC, who was like the lead on on digital media. She's the one who was in very close touch with the social media companies and sort of constantly telling them what kinds of things to censor, what kinds of posts should come down. Um, And then uh, Fauci obviously was was a very interesting deposition. So, but now we're finally wrapping up. I believe there should be a hearing on the preliminary injunction probably within the next month, um, maybe two months.
1: In these depositions or otherwise, maybe in public statements, have the various officials involved um, offered any defense of why this was OK to do?
2: Not really. Uh, most of them have sort of denied that it happened. Uh, uh, so Fauci himself said that he doesn't he's too busy running a six plus billion dollar institute to uh, have time for social media. So he denied having any involvement in any of this Um What Carol Crawford at the CDC did acknowledge um, that this was going on. She couldn't not because there are (laughs) hundreds of emails back and forth where she's telling them much censor, but she didn't seem to, she didn't think there was a problem with it. What she basically said was, no, the company is, they had a misinformation policy. They were just looking for our guidance. We were giving it to them. Um, Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Are those materials available for people to see anywhere?
2: A lot of them are. Uh, they're on our website. Um, they're also, I believe, they're on the Missouri and Louisiana Attorney General's website. We got, as I mentioned, about 15, 16,000 pages. So there's a, uh, the judge's order says we can't release anything that has people's emails or phone numbers. So we weren't able to get everything redacted just to the, due to the sheer uh, number of documents, but we used the most interesting ones. Those are redacted, those are part of filing. So those are uh, available on the websites.
1: Great. Um, and um where what do you think what do you think is going to happen at the hearing? Do you have any predictions?
2: Yeah. I mean, the judge clearly, you know, based on his earlier rulings, seems to think this is a very big problem. <laughs> he's made he's written some, you know, there have been these decisions in the interim, um for instance, the one granting discovery. Uh, he's, you know, indicated that if we think what's going on is going on as we've found out more and more, it turns on it turns out we were correct uh, that, Um, that would be a First Amendment violation. So I can't imagine that he would order all this discovery if he didn't think that we had it. Our theory was um, sort of accurate.
1: Okay, Um, and um, tell us a little bit more about some of the effects um, on the people that you represent uh, in Missouri versus Biden. What what has happened to their lives uh, in a way that people would want to know about?
2: Well, they've I mean, they've suffered immensely, especially doctors Bhattacharya and Kuldorf. So uh, Dr. Bhattacharya actually wrote a very compelling piece in Tablet about a month ago about his experience at Stanford University, where he was really maligned. Um, He was afraid for his life because, you know, he thought the lockdowns were a bad idea. Uh, People were threatening him Um, and Stanford really did nothing to protect him or his right to speak. Um, They didn't facilitate any kind of dialogue on lockdowns. They actually held a panel about COVID policy and had nobody... Who opposed lockdowns. And when he asked them why, they said, well, it was just too upsetting to most people, too upsetting to even hear a point of view from an epidemiologist who thinks that lockdowns are a bad idea. Um, and obviously, you know, he's had his materials censored, which is upsetting. Um, so Kuldorf as well um uh, has had a difficult time. I don't think I uh, can go into it any more than that. But <laughs> there's there have def- definitely been personal repercussions to their activities. And then being censored uh, as a scientist is very upsetting i think it's it's hard. it's been hard for them to see that the country and the government does not actually have an interest in a valid or a real debate on these topics but has really uh, only wanted to have a one-sided um you know one side decide what the policies are without any input from people who dissent
1: right um well that certainly is uh <laughs> Unfortunately. There are two other plaintiffs along with um, the doctors, uh, Bhattacharya and uh, Kuldorf. Can you tell us a little bit about them?
2: Yes. Uh, Aaron Cariotti is a psychiatrist. He was a professor of medical ethics at UC Irvine until he was let go for not getting the vaccine, even though he had natural immunity. So he actually brought a case uh, some people may have, might have heard of against the university, unfortunately lost. Um, and Jill Hines runs an organization in Louisiana called Health Freedom Louisiana, and they fight mandates, um, you know, all, all of these sort of health, quote unquote, health-related mandates.
1: Is there any ev- evidence that um, the government has backed off from some of this Um uh- you know, delisting or
2: shadow banning or uh, whatever? In terms no, of- there isn't. And actually, to the contrary, uh, it looks like they are, they're almost, they're not embarrassed. <laughs> they're In the middle of all of this stuff coming out from uh, in the Missouri case about, um, you know, Rob Flaherty's emails, these other things that I would be very embarrassed about if I was in the Biden administration, uh, his current press secretary, uh, Jean-Pierre, Jean- was giving talks about how or giving um press conferences saying that she was they had their eye on twitter especially elon musk they were going to make sure that twitter behaved responsibly and continued to censor misinformation i mean so there's not been i don't think any recognition or concern for what's going on here
1: the um uh how many social media uh outlets are involved here
2: um well, we don't know. Uh, certainly, the big ones: Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google, which are owned by the same. Um, Instagram, owned by Facebook too. Um, LinkedIn, but I think it probably goes beyond that. I, it, even Pinterest, Snapchat. I think there's some there's some um, government involvement there. Uh, we don't know the full extent. So the judge actually ordered third one thing I uh, forgot to mention earlier, the judge actually ordered third party discovery on the tech company. So we got some stuff from them um, as well. And what that actually showed was that far more government officials and agencies were involved in this enterprise than we had known previously. Uh, The government gave us different answers and left out a bunch (laughs) of people and agencies. So we know, I mean, that's that's pretty solid evidence that they weren't forthcoming. They were trying to sort of downplay this and not give us the names of lots of people. So it's actually through the tech companies that we've learned a lot of this, and that's allowed us to get more discovery. And because they weren't honest from the beginning, the judge has, I think, been... um, questioning their honesty and so has been more willing to order discovery because it's clear they're not forthcoming.
1: That's certainly unfortunate to hear. hear. Do you think um, uh, this, how long do you think this litigation will go on? Do you have any sense of uh, whether it's going to be one of these cases that goes on forever? Or do you think that the the courts will offer some uh, correction and relief uh, more quickly?
2: Uh, sort of both things. <laughs> so I think it's uh, given that it's been ten months in the preliminary injunction phase, I think it's likely to sort of go for a really long time until it's finally wrapped up. Uh, I do think there'll probably be a ruling on the preliminary injunction um, before this summer would be my guess. Uh, so we'll have some indication and some kind of legal ruling, um, even though it's a preliminary injunction and not a final decision. But that could get appealed. So. I, I, yeah, I think we'll I think we'll get an indication of where the courts are going or what they think of these uh arguments and ideas um you know before years have passed but I I guess the, I'm guessing the case won't wrap up or finish completely for a number of years.
1: Okay, now we have a second case to discuss because I want to leave plenty of time for questions um and so we're now going to turn to Hogue versus Newsom and as I indicated at the beginning this has to do with a statute. Uh Janine, can you start by telling us about that statute
2: yes so this is california's assembly bill 2098 um and it prohibits doctors from disseminating misinformation to patients about COVID. now the problem or the the legal argument we make is about the definition of misinformation which is defined as false information that contradicts the contemporary scientific consensus contrary to the standard of care. There are no uh, conjunctions or commas or anything to separate those three phrases. So- Why don't you
1: repeat the the critical phase here so that our listeners can understand what has been legislated through two houses of the California legislature.
2: Uh, False information that contradicts the contemporary scientific consensus contrary to the standard of care. Okay, that's kind of complicated. Yeah, um, <laughs> or nonsensical, as the judge said.
1: <laughs> and uh, and was this um, also signed by the governor?
2: It was. He uh, he appended a signing statement with expressing some reservations, uh, saying he was worried there were First Amendment problems, but he was confident it would only be used when there was an intent to, you know, a malicious intent. But the but the law contains no such, uh, you know and requirement within it. So that's just wishful thinking.
1: Okay, so tell us about how um, you found your clients and, uh, and and what you did that next.
2: So I found my clients uh, were also people I knew through sort of, we'd, we'd all been active in fighting COVID restrictions. So they were just people I knew through that world. Um, Aaron Cariotti, who I mentioned before, is one of the plaintiffs, <laughs> uh, he, he's in both cases. And then Tracy Hogue, who's a doctor in the Sacramento area um, Ram Duraceti, an ER physician at Stanford, Azadeh Khatibi, who is, uh, who is a doctor, an ophthalmologist, but she's actually joining the suit as a, a patient because she suffered a, from a life-threatening illness um herself and followed the when she was diagnosed she followed the consensus of one doctor rather than the majority who he had he was an outlier and his recommendations and she ended up surviving when she was given like a 10 percent chance of surviving or something like that um so uh, her point is that if you're only allowing doctors to speak when it's when they agree with the consensus people like her might not be alive today uh, and then the fifth plaintiff is pete mazalowski he's a surgeon um, I forgot exactly where in California he is, but they uh, so they are all arguing that the law violates their First Amendment rights because it's viewpoint based discrimination and then that it's unconstitutionally vague.
1: Well, isn't there also a legitimate scientific issue here that consensus is not something that scientists, um, uh, good scientists uh, think necessarily governs? Uh, the scientific and medical process, if I understand that correctly.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So one of our arguments is that that, the definition of misinformation, false information that contradicts the scientific consensus, contrary to the standard of care is unconstitutionally vague. That's a due process issue. Um, And one of the many points we make in that argument is that who knows what the contemporary scientific consensus is? Uh, who gets to decide? Is it all doctors and scientists? Some only in certain fields? How often do we decide what's contemporary? Is it every month? <laughs> is it every year? Um, and you know, when you look at the reality of COVID, where things have changed by the day, um, you know, a year and a half ago, uh Rochelle Walensky, the CDC director, said you won't get COVID if you've been vaccinated. We all know that. that's not true now. Um, there's pretty clear evidence that mask mandates are ineffective, all of this. So So for various reasons, we don't know what the consensus is. And then doctors have historically not been sort of uh, required or restrained to act within a consensus. They're supposed to use their best judgment. And as our plaintiffs actually argued in their declarations, the studies show that the contemporary scientific the scientific consensus takes about 17 years to reach the average doctor. So the latest science is actually, so if you're on the cutting edge of a field and you're actually the best in the top, you're going to know things that the average doctor doesn't, and that you might be practicing against the consensus. And one sort of concrete example we have is that one of the plaintiffs, uh, Ram Durasetti, the ER doctor at Stanford, at the beginning, he's treated hundreds of COVID patients. At the beginning of the pandemic, He thought ventilation for severe cases was a bad idea. But everybody was saying, no, ventilate, ventilate. He turned out to be right. One of the reasons we know he's right is that he was not forced to abide by a consensus or or suffer discipline. Um, He was able to follow his instincts, which turned out to be correct. And we wouldn't have necessarily known that if people like him weren't allowed to do what they believed was best.
1: So tell us about the hearing.
2: <laughs> so yeah, the hearing was uh, early. Uh, sorry, late January, January twenty third. Um, we were actually heard with another, along with another case that raised the same issue. And uh, we had Judge Judge Shubb in the Eastern District. He had been a First Amendment lawyer. Um, so we. This is were, the Eastern uh, District of California, California. Sorry, so we knew he knew his <laughs> his stuff. He he sort of, to my surprise, focused much more on the vagueness than the First Amendment issue. Um, And ended up, uh, he called the law nonsense at the hearing. So I, (laughs) I thought we had a good shot. The definition of misinformation. So one of the arguments we made was false information that contradicts the contemporary scientific consensus, contrary to the standard of care. If you don't, is it or is it? Does the board have to prove show one of those things? Does have to show all of them? How do they relate to each other? How do they differ from each other? Doctors don't know. and he, he really got that. Uh, so the state was trying to argue that you'd have to show all three elements so that's that it was, you know, so the doctors already have to operate according to the standard of care. So this wasn't imposing any new burden on them. Um, it was just adding some other phrases because it was, you know, they're all, all they're supposed to have to show all of them. Well, we argue, then what's the point of a law? If this really isn't doing anything else, then why even have it? um obviously what you're trying to do is silence doctors who differ from the state and that that's clear from the language of the statute itself as well as the legislative record which makes clear what they're trying to do is uh shut up doctors who um question state orthodoxy on covid and uh what did the uh court hold So the court, well, so the court granted the preliminary injunction two days later in a 35 page decision. (laughs) I suspect he had been working on it (laughs) beforehand, but uh, he, he granted it on the vagueness grounds. He indicated, he dropped a footnote and said, because he was reaching it on the vagueness, the due process grounds, he wasn't going to address the first amendment, but indicated he thought we had a very good argument. So, um, so then the. Uh, and
1: did you get to make a support in, in your? We location?
2: did from the ACLU as well as another organization called uh, something about choice and medical freedom or something. So the ACLU supported our case. Um, what's happening right now is that the state has actually decided not to appeal our case. But there was another case in the central district that went the other way. The plaintiffs lost. And um, that's now up on appeal in the Ninth Circuit. So we provided amicus support there and, uh, our, and the ACLU also is providing amicus support. And we're hoping that the Ninth Circuit realizes recognizes its love for what it is.
1: Well, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to close um, uh, before we get to questions with um, a topic I will call the Great Reckoning. And I'd like you to just tell our listeners the various um Uh, reports and research uh, and published conclusions that have come to light over the past several months. You know, you can start with natural immunity. Um, There was a study in Lancet. um, And and just tell us about these studies one by one and what they uh, have uh, uncovered.
2: Yeah. So uh, there was there was a recent study in Lancet showing that natural immunity is better than vaccine induced immunity, which anyone who is paying attention has known <laughs> basically two years. Um, it's been very clear. Uh, the CDC has obviously played a very active role in trying to cover that up for reasons I won't speculate about. Um, the, you know, and that it was misinformation to say that on Twitter a year ago, I know because I was censored for it, um, mask mandates, likewise, you know, it's considered misinformation. Doctors, Bhattacharya, and Kuldor were censored for saying that they didn't think mask mandates were a good idea, especially for kids. Um, and now there's been a, this Cochrane review, a sort of a meta study of all the studies, uh, mask mandates do nothing. Um, the, of course, what the other... The argument against has been they were, you know, they said people didn't always wear their masks properly. So people have been saying, well, it's because people weren't wearing their masks properly. It's not that the mandates don't work, but the problem is that public health intervention has to actually work in practice. The reason people don't wear their masks properly is because you can't ask people to wear masks all day, every day for years on end without, you know, ever taking it off and breathing. I mean, it just doesn't work uh, as as a way to live. So obviously, that study should be considered, um, you know, very strong evidence that uh, mask mandates were entirely ineffective. The um, and then there has been there have been many studies about lockdowns. Now there was one from Johns Hopkins. There was a recent one. I forgot where it was conducted, uh, but also saying basically no difference between countries that locked down. and didn't in terms of deaths. So our plaintiffs were right. Uh, How about school closures? School closures, same. I I incorporate school closures and lockdowns. (laughs) Sure. Uh, I think one of the things that this really teaches us is, you know, our clients were right and they were silenced for saying things that differed from the state by the state um, on their field of expertise when these are some of the top experts in the world. And lots of people suffered and died, um, you know, our mental health has uh, um, problems have skyrocketed. Tons of children who uh, left school during lockdowns have never returned. They're going to lead shorter, poorer lives for many reasons. Uh, Lots of people lost their businesses forever. Um, Lots of people died because they didn't go to the hospital because they were afraid of COVID, even though they had heart attack symptoms. Uh, People missed cancer screenings and those death rates are going up. So this has had very severe consequences and deleterious consequences for society. Um, And it's because I, you know, I think if there had been a robust debate, lots of Americans would have seen that this was not a good idea. But instead, people like Drs. Bhattacharya and kuldorf were silenced and shut up. And that's led to great harm to society. So I think that these cases sort of exemplify why we have a First Amendment. You know, I mean, the First Amendment also protects false information, it protects the people who are saying the microchip doesn't work. <laughs> but these this is why we have it, because once you get the state involved in censorship. Where does it end? And and we we're we're seeing that the people doing the censorship don't know where to draw the lines, and that's why we don't have the government drawing the lines.
1: Okay, well, we have some questions. Um, and would you have a a final, uh, you know, (laughs) thing you want to say, or do you want to just? No, uh, I'm I'm happy with that. (laughs) happy to answer questions. (laughs) Okay, so. uh, first question is, are you familiar with the FDA sa- sending cease and desist letters to doctors who posted misinformation?
2: I've heard of that. Um, I actually don't know a ton about it. I, I I think I, I don't think I was ever contacted by someone who that happened to. Okay.
1: Um, uh, another questioner has asked, um, uh, uh, who's, they're very familiar with the Twitter files and they, um, say that the defense seems to be that the governor, government, the FBI, CIA, whatever, is just suggesting bans, not directing them. What would you say to that?
2: First of all, as I was sort of talking about earlier, we know from these coercive statements that, uh, especially in the COVID context, that it was not just suggestions, it's threats. Um, And some of what appears to be a more collaborative uh, operation is because there were these threats made in the past. I mean, if you threaten someone and then they appear to be cooperative after that, that's not really, (laughs) I don't think that can be considered voluntary. To the extent some of it, I think, may have been more collaborative, uh, especially when it comes to like the foreign, um, you know, DHS and uh, trying to stop foreign interference in elections and that that ending up, you know, silencing Americans who, for instance, um, thought that Trump won the election, which happened quite a bit. That does look a bit more collaborative, but I, I think that we need... Um, I think that the First Amendment should prohibit the government from working with private industry to censor viewpoints. And I would draw an analogy to the Fourth Amendment, where the government can't hire a private company to go into your home because the government doesn't have enough evidence to get a warrant. Uh, the, you know, the government shouldn't be able to outsource what would be unconstitutional activity if it did it in itself to a private company, whether or not the private company wants to be doing that.
1: So another uh, questioner wants to know what kind of damages could be awarded, um, if plaintiffs prevail, and they specifically, um, know that they have fo- followed, uh, uh, Jay Bhattar Racha's, um, uh, travails, and would like to know what kind of damages he might be entitled to.
2: So we're not seeking damages in these cases right now. Um, I think that I think it can change if it shows that people were really intentionally and maliciously targeted. Um, We do know, for instance, that uh, Bhattacharya and Kuldorf were targeted by uh, Fauci. Fauci has emails with someone named Francis Collins at the NIH where they're talking about taking down, we got to take down these fringe epidemiologists. Um, But we don't have enough evidence right now that they were responsible for the harms that they uh, experienced on social media. I think you would need more direct evidence that they were censored at these people's behest. Right now, our argument is like, we don't even have to have that direct evidence. This has a strong chilling effect. And it's gonna be very unusual that we can prove any specific person was censored because of the government. But if the government's involved in this, anybody who was censored on social media during this period of time should be uh, their First Amendment rights were violated. And also there's a reciprocal First Amendment right to receive information. So all Americans were deprived of um, that right. So, yeah, right now, probably not looking at damages, but that could change. Uh, and then also, if we set good precedent with this um, case, and then in the future the government continues to engage in this kind of conduct, then I think people could be looking at damages.
1: Um, another questioner wants to know if we've run into any issues or roadblocks with courts granting qualified immunity to the state or federal defendants or public officials. Not yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, the next question is, well, what what is your end game? What do you want to get?
2: We want a court. Uh, we want the courts to recognize that uh, the government can't work with <laughs> pressure, coerce, collude, anything with private industry to censor people based on viewpoint. Um, and I think this is really important. You know, there's not a lot of directly on point case law, and that's because I think it's because. Um, Prior to social media, you just didn't have the government able to be involved in censoring individual Americans the way that you can now with social media. I mean, yeah, there are sort of analogous examples where the government tells a newspaper, please don't print this or we're going to prosecute, you You know, the Pentagon Papers, that kind of thing. But it wasn't as uh, because that newspaper does have editorial discretion. And because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't serve as a platform for basically just anyone who wants to go on it. It didn't have the same kind of impact. Um, and that's why I think it's really important that in the digital age we recognize that this is a huge First Amendment violation.
1: Um, another questioner asks, how far along the spectrum from persuasion to compulsion does the government have to go before there is state action implicating the First Amendment?
2: I think, so in my opinion, um, again, I don't think the state should be able to be involved in censoring at all. So I don't think, I think persuasion should be considered a First Amendment violation. Uh, Obviously, coercion is a stronger case. It's it's definitely easier to make that case. So I I guess I fall on the side of any government involvement in in this should be considered unlawful.
1: Okay, we have an interesting question here. The Twitter files revealed a September 2020 proposal by the FBI officials to create encrypted communications channel channels, something called Signal app with the social media companies. Can future communications be enjoined, and what is the likelihood of learning via discovery about the content of government social media companies' Signal communications? Hmm.
2: That's a really good question. I, you know, I'd have to give that one some thought. I, do you have any thoughts on it?
1: Well, I would think. Uh, you know, they can't, if it's <laughs> government con- communications are entitled to know those. And so they would have to reveal the signal, uh, yeah, communications unless there was some, you know, wartime exception or something. Yeah. Like but there really isn't that. Yeah.
2: yeah, that sounds right to me. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> um, all right. Um, that was a, that was a find. <laughs> <laughs> um, Another person asks, suppose the speakers who were suppressed were not world experts in their fields, like the two um, epidemiologists and doctors that you mentioned. How, uh, if at all, would that change your analysis or your argument?
2: It doesn't. Uh, And, you know, some of our plaintiffs aren't two of two of the other plaintiffs aren't world epidemiologists. Two of actually the three plaintiffs I have in the other case, I mentioned Shanghizi that sort of preceded uh, Missouri are not. one is a scientist, but two are lawyers. Um, I, you know, I I don't think it matters at all. I would I would defend the person who says the vaccines have a microchip's right to say that, even though I don't agree with that. That's a true statement. <laughs> and I you would, would insist warmly... upon your right to to, to debate that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um I like using these plaintiffs as an example because I think it helps people to see why we have a First Amendment. You know, this sort of shows how. Uh, the debate, which was so important and that really should have taken place in a healthy democracy, didn't because these people were silenced. But of course, all Americans have a First Amendment right to speak on this and any other subject.
1: So a questioner who arrived late wants to know whether Section 230 has any bearing on this issue.
2: Um, Not directly. Uh, We are arguing, we do argue in the complaint that the companies kind of want to have it both ways. So they're, you know, saying, well, we can't, you know, we get section 230 protection. We can't be held responsible for what people say on our platform. But also we want to censor people, you know, because they're saying the wrong thing and that they shouldn't be able to have it both ways. Either they're a publisher and they should be held responsible or they're not and then they shouldn't be censoring people for expressing viewpoints.
1: Um, have any of the deponents in the depositions invoked the Fifth Amendment?
2: Not, uh, not in any of the ones that I watched. I didn't. I have to admit, I didn't watch all of them. There were lots of them, and they were very long. But, uh, but they mostly answered the questions. Um, even, even Dr. Fauci. Okay.
1: And did any of the social media companies um, refuse the government's demands, to your knowledge?
2: Um, there were a couple of instances on which they pushed back. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember. There were a couple of times they were asked to censor things and there were clearly like um, there was one that was it was like posts that were saying they didn't think vaccine mandates were a good idea. And the company said, no, this is an opinion. Uh, you know, we're not going to do that. So they did um, push back on occasion. Rob Flaherty frequently sort of derided them anyway, and then they would actually cave. So, again, more evidence. They didn't cave every time. There were a couple of times they didn't.
1: Yeah, because the follow up question on that was, were any penalties visited upon the resistors? And how would you describe that situation on the pushback?
2: Um, There weren't. So there weren't direct penalties, but it's threats. It's that we are going to penalize you if you don't do this. Um, When the company is pushed back, they would say, look, this is an opinion. We're not. And this was very rare. There may be two or three emails out of, you know, the thousands that were uh, pushing back at all. They say, no, we're not going to do this. This is someone's opinion. And he says, OK. But if if he really thought that it should be censored, he pushed and, you know, and then, you know, you have a lot of people in the Biden administration saying they're going to be held accountable. We're looking at there. They, they threaten like 230 reform, um, which, you know, the companies are really afraid of because if they can be held responsible for whatever anyone says on their platforms, they social media can't really exist the way that it does. That You can't have people posting whatever they want all the time.
1: Right. Right. Um, Someone has asked, "What is the exposure of these tech companies for cooperating? Um, is there um, some sort of relief available under Section 1983 or anything else? Um, and are any government officials at risk of criminal liability?"
2: Criminal liability, probably not now. Although some people have a theory that there there could be, especially when they were very, they very clearly knew they were violating the First Amendment. Um, as far as the companies, it's a little hard to say. I mean, I think the company is probably almost, it's almost in their interests to claim that they were coerced or to go with the coercion theory of this, because if they were doing it voluntarily, then I think they could almost be considered state actors and perhaps sued for violating people's First Amendment rights, which um, could expose them to liability. And I think people who earn a living uh, from their social media accounts, like someone like Alex Berenson, who people might have heard about Uh, who was directly censored because of the government um, on Twitter. His account was basically removed after Biden called him a threat. Uh, They, you know, and he earned a lot of money off his Twitter account. I think they might be able to get some money from the tech companies if they are considered state actors. So I'm not exactly sure where this will go, but we're not suing the tech companies in this lawsuit. Okay.
1: Someone did ask about um, Alex Ber- Berenson, so I'm glad you um, mm-hmm. offered that information. That question is ac- answered now. Um, someone asks <laughs> an interesting one: Doctor Fauci denied participating in these act- activities because he is so busy. Or mm-hmm. ad- any evidence to the contrary?
2: Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one, he, he, there were some contradictory things. He had claimed at some point he was asked about a podcast he went on. This was in connection with the lab leak theory. He went on with Peter Daszak, but which, which, by the way, is another example of you know something that was considered misinformation, and we now know probably it was true. Uh, he's claimed not to remember doing a podcast with Daszak, and he said, "I do so many podcasts. I've done hundreds of podcasts. I mean, if he's so busy, I don't know <laughs> why he's doing podcasts." But. Uh, <laughs>
1: Okay. Um, Could there be a class action in the future of Americans who are denied access to unorthodox information?
2: Um, Yes. (laughs) Let's let's just say uh, that there may be something along those lines in the pipeline.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, you don't have to answer this question, but I'm going to read it anyway. On a scale of one to 10, How satisfying was it to depose Anthony Fauci (laughs) and relatedly, if the court finds that certain public officials violated the First Amendment rights of your clients, is there a legal mechanism by which these officials can be held accountable?
2: Um, as far as Fauci on a scale of one to ten, <laughs> it, I'd give it a seven because he didn't uh, he didn't speak that much on the he didn't have that much knowledge or claim not to have that much knowledge on the topic we wanted. Uh, but he did give some other very interesting information that, that I think was revealing about his mindset, or at least confirmed uh, the type of mindset he has, which is that he knows everything and um, isn't really open to input from other people. Um, Uh, And also, to be clear, I didn't personally depose him. The uh, Solicitor General of Missouri did, but I was in the room and helped with preparations and that sort of thing. Um, The other question, oh, uh, whether he could be held personally accountable. Is that, uh, yeah, Yeah. well, we're currently suing all of these people in their official capacities. Um, I think more information would have to, more damning information would have to come out for us to try to sue them in their individual capacities. And I... I think that would be more difficult. I don't see it happening now, but it's not impossible.
1: Okay, now here's a really interesting thing. Uh, uh, I'm certainly learning something and maybe you too. Signal, remember there was the earlier question, but signal is like Snapchat in that the communications are not preserved. If the FBI did that, they were essentially conspiring to plan spoliation of otherwise discoverable communications, violate NARA, et cetera.
2: Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I <laughs> I don't know enough about the law or surrounding that to give a very informed answer. Um, it seems like it presents a problem.
1: <laughs> okay, someone has asked if you looked at the repercussions against federal employees and military personnel who have had their employment terminated, retirement suspended, or were administratively discharged from the military.
2: For not getting the vaccine, or I'm
1: for, assuming that's it, doesn't say that, but I think that's and there was some litigation
2: Yeah, that. um, we have uh, not, we didn't actually challenge the military, um, vaccine mandate. We did challenge a number of Biden's other mandates for federal contractors and employees, so uh, we argued that those were unconstitutional. Um, we haven't, we haven't gotten decisions yet.
1: Okay, uh, and somebody else, um, uh, brought up the signal thing and said maybe a remedy is to ban government communications on systems that do not preserve uh, yeah. messages, which I suppose would be um, something to think about in terms yeah. of um, future litigation. Yeah. Um, do you think uh, uh, that the conduct of the government or any of its employees was criminal? <sighs>
2: Probably not the way that the law exists now. I mean, I think it's so uh, bad <laughs> that it, it's disappointing to me that they can't, that the law doesn't help hold them more personally accountable. And I think it's a really big problem. You know, if people, I, I do think some of these people know that they were flouting the First Amendment, but they know that they weren't going to be held personally responsible. So, okay, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to me? A court's going to say, I can't do what I already did. Too bad. Um, and I, so I think that is a really big issue. And I, I think it encourages um government officials to act lawlessly when they're not, when they don't suffer any real world consequences for what they've done.
1: Now, we have something called a wild suggestion, um, mm-hmm. asking if we reached out to Elon Musk, uh, or whether voluntarily or through a third party, because uh, he might have access to other relevant communications to your cases, and he would appear to be willing to share such information. And I will just throw in that he apparently did uh, invite certain uh, reporters and Barry Weiss um, into look at the Twitter files. Um, have we been made privy to any of that information?
2: Yeah. So the, uh, our client was at Musk. I think he was the first person Musk called. Musk um, called him one night and invited him to the wait, Twitter. Wait, no, who? Who did you call? Jay Bhattacharya, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> um, and so that was actually how Jay found out he was on a blacklist. Um, and so he spoke to Musk and Musk knows about the lawsuit and has indicated that he uh, wants to help. His his lawyers have been, um, they're doing what they can. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of documents. He, um, but he apparently told Jay that he doesn't care about the repercussions for Twitter. What he cares about is free speech and exposing anything that the government has done that's unlawful here. So, um, so hopefully he will continue to do that.
1: So do you predict there'll be a sharing of information through the various um, channels in which uh, the Twitter and other files are coming out?
2: I do, yeah, I, I do think so. Um, I, I don't know if there'll be anything new. Uh... Okay,
1: um, I Let me see, I can't tell if I'm at the end of the questions. But no, I'm not, okay. the uh, question thing is jumping up and down a bit for me so um, there's more more information on the signal um, mm-hmm. and and how it might um, uh, violate what's known as the National Archives and Records Act um, for our listeners uh, so uh, I think you know the thought would be that, that it that would be a um, concerted effort to, um, as a, you know, engage in spoliation. Uh, yeah. uh, let me see here. Uh, do you, are you aware of any existing laws regarding, uh, banning what would be called ephemeral communication such as, um, uh, signal?
2: No, I mean, I, it seems as though the government shouldn't be using things where their messages disappear unless there is some exception for law enforcement, something. I don't know. <laughs> um, so there could be an exception I'm unaware of. That's right. It.
1: Do you think if if they um, were engaged in that sort of activity, the, the social media companies, uh, should they uh, should that bear on their sec- Section 230 immunity?
2: Oh, That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to see their immunity taken away. I think that would be bad for social media, um, you know, and, and the, one of the exceptions to their immunity is they can't facilitate unlawful activity or, you know, they should, should be taking that down. Um, which is what I think, how they think that, how I think they should be dealing with it. Just, you know, things that are purely unlawful other than that, um, no content moderation, uh, but I'm not, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know that that's the solution, um with respect to the
1: signal issue? Um, Someone is asking about a case called Snyder versus Phelps. They say it's a somewhat obscure US Supreme Court case uh, that may have some poignancy here because um, it it apparently suggests that um, you have a First Amendment right to refuse to receive a vaccination.
2: Hmm. I didn't. Uh, I. I never. I don't think I came across that case. Although it does ring a bell, <laughs> but okay. I number of vaccine mandate cases. I. I don't think I found it particularly. We didn't do any religious exemption cases, so maybe that's. Okay.
1: Well, I think I'm at the end of our question list, and we have um, only a couple minutes left in our allotted time. Um, Sam, do you have any questions? Anything you'd like to follow up with?
0: Uh, no, this has been great. I really appreciate uh, I appreciate the opportunity, and I, I appreciate you both. Um, we do have a couple minutes. I don't know if Janine or Peggy, you have some final thoughts that you want to leave the audience with.
1: Well, Janine's the expert here.
2: <laughs> I, uh, learned, I,
1: would- I learned a lot here um, from our questioners as well as Janine. Yeah,
2: so a lot about signal. Um, yeah. I would just say I, I sort of got at this before, but I think uh, in this pandemic era, we really gave up a lot of rights. And, um, I think this shows how dangerous it is. The, the fact there's a pandemic should not, um, lead us to allow the government to infringe on our first amendment rights, whether to, to, gather and worship or to speak or any of that. And we saw how badly that went. And that's why I think we need to be more vigilant and fight back harder next time around.
1: Okay. Well, we certainly have, I think, a wealth of information that um, came out uh, due to your your efforts and those of many other people who have been plowing in these same fields. And uh, I do feel like I unfortunately, unfortunately uh, am a lot wiser and somewhat sadder about the state of our government.
0: Yeah, yeah. Excellent, well, uh- to Janine and Peggy, both of you, I want to thank you on behalf of the Federalist Society. I think this was a, a true litigation update, and our listeners appreciate the ability to ask you so many questions. Thank you both for, for addressing them and for your time and expertise. I also want to thank the audience for joining us. We greatly appreciate your participation. Please check out our website, fedsock.org, or you can follow us on all major social media platforms at Fedsock to stay up to date with announcements and upcoming webinars. Again, I want to thank you all for tuning in, and we are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federal Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.